0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Success Defined. I'm Ben McDonald, and today we are joined by Steve Milo. Steve has created and run multiple companies, including currently being the founder and CEO of VTrips, a growing and innovative vacation rental reservation platform. Steve's been a thought leader regarding the evolution of the vacation rental industry, and we appreciate you having me on, Steve. Hey, thank you, Ben.
1: Appreciate being on
0: as well. Absolutely. This will be fun. So, I want to start, uh, you've founded multiple companies, and where did that entrepreneurial mindset originally come from? Well, you know, I guess it started off when I was pretty young. Um,
1: I uh, had hobbies, and I needed uh, money to to uh, enjoy the hobby. So my, my first passion was collecting comic books, and uh, I started to do various uh, things to generate money to, to support my comic book collection, including, you know, lawn mowing. But I also had a uh, donut route, uh, you know, so this was when I was 11 and 12 years old. And um, once I got uh, to a position where I had a car, I found out that I could actually uh, do business selling comic books at comic book conventions, and I was actually pretty good at it. And so I began uh, buying comic books wholesale and then selling them to the public. And uh, that, uh, you know, those were kind of my roots, uh, which uh, were of my youth and supported of hobby and, and eventually gave me extra spending money.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It was basically, you, you had a, a need or a want, and so you just went out and figured out how to, uh, how to make the money to do it. That's fantastic. So, so you almost created that, that mindset and, and built it from a young age. And then mid-80s come, you graduate college, paint the picture of starting another universe, your, your first, uh, uh I would say kind of large adventure.
1: So it's the picture is almost like, uh, a bit like the social network except for it was in the eighties and there was no internet. <laughs> and I was a college student, um, with, uh, uh, without having a, a job in college, uh, I needed to pay for, uh, some of my tuition and other expenses. And, um, I had this comic book collection, but uh, you know, obviously it was impractical to be going to comic book conventions in, uh, in college. So I, uh, I started to post uh, ads on, on uh, newspapers and um, collectible sites for uh, mail order. And I started to build up a mail order business in my uh, dorm room. So by the time uh, I was in my second year of college, uh, there was so much UPS traffic coming into the dorm that uh, apparently <laughs> one of the uh, students uh, went, uh, blew the whistle and uh, I was in the dean of students office. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, the the roots were uh, essentially, you know, I was driven by money. Uh, I built a business that I was able to really take outside of college. I mean, by my fourth year in, in college, my senior year, uh, you know, I I was generating over a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, it was all mail order. And then I, uh, you know, started another universe full time
0: once I graduated. Yeah. Well, wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. So, quick side note: I started my first business as a sophomore of college, and it was kind of go to class, then come back from marketing class, and apply it straight to the business plan, and kind of figure it out from there. So, so I love to I love to hear that. Um, so you you did that and then evolved it when you, when you graduated, what was your original goal? Maybe not day one in, in the, uh, um, in the dorm room, but once you graduate and you try to establish a, a long-term business or vision, what was that original goal for you?
1: Well, I mean, it, it really started off just basically trying to maximize money uh, okay. to, to buy things like houses and cars and you know material goods. Um, you know, I wish I had thought a little bit more about uh, the business and 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 where where it was going to go, but it kind of evolved around me. I was pretty good at taking advantage of opportunity, and um, you know, the comic book industry was flourishing in the in the early '90s, and we built up a sizable business um, selling. You know, it actually became more than comic books. You know, it was uh, fantasy and science fiction and all kinds of collectible items through, uh, through the mail. And uh, we ended up uh, opening retail stores, which was not the best decision. But the one thing that we also did, uh, which is how it propelled me into the future, is early on in 1996, I uh, started the first e-commerce site uh, for comic books uh, using what became the Yahoo store and uh, began to sell uh, comic books uh, via uh, a website. So it was a fascinating evolution. And, um, uh, you know, if I had been, uh, if I had more of a plan, uh, probably in the early 90s, I would have moved to Silicon Valley, (laughs) done a pure play. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, I'd I'd be, uh, you know, one of the multi-billionaires right now. But, uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, I was in uh, Washington,
0: D.C. area and, uh, you know, leveraging technology. Yeah. Well, maybe social network would have been made around your story instead. So <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right. I was a little too early, uh, but I was, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the roots of some of what I've done is understanding direct response to the consumer and the discipline of that before there was an Internet and then evolving the internet. So, I mean, I, I think I have fundamental skills where um, direct response is a real business. Obviously, you know, you don't really have catalogs anymore. Now you have e-commerce, but it's all based on the fundamentals of taking a look at your customers, your leads, how you convert and uh, how you, uh, you know, your spend and your lifetime value and, and your ROI. And, you know, all of those disciplines um, were built through uh, catalog uh marketing and then I applied them to e-commerce and and I'm still applying them today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. So you said at first it was the goal was to to make money, right? By the by the physical things and stuff like that. Right. But your first business was also around a passion of yours, right? Like comic books from an early age was something that you were interested in. So I I hear all the time different perspectives of, of pursuing passions versus pursuing things that you can monetize. Uh, when you look back at, at this first business, what was the balance between the two in your kind of decision-making of passion versus money?
1: It was a combination of both. Uh, you know, and I think that's really ultimately the question you asked is, is, is what's most important, is that you have to like what you're doing. Right. Um, you know, I think it, it, it's hard if you don't like what you're doing to, uh, succeed long-term. So, you know, I really enjoyed the product. I mean, I, I've met so many people. We made so many people happy. I met, you know, so many uh, people in the comic book industry that are legends, you know, like Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and, um, uh, all, you know, er, you know, uh, McFarlane and, uh, um, yeah, all, the, all the major players in the 80s, 90s, um, you know, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, all these major, major celebrities uh, were coming to do signings or special events with our company. And it, it was just great to get to know uh, these, these amazing people. And, and so, you know, there, were, there was that benefit. And then, uh, you know, I felt good about what we were doing. We, we had product that we were able to get to people, some people in very small towns and cities throughout North America and, uh, you know, they
0: just love the product. Right. Yeah. So, I, I think you hit on a really good point because there's, there's almost a, a third aspect, right? You said that the balance between passion and money is important, right? You can't only do a passion that has no way to monetize and vice versa if you're only going after the money with no passion, you're going to lose some motivation. But, but you also hit on the impact, right? You were you were enriching people's lives through your product and you felt good about what you were doing. Um, when did you, when did you really see that, that impact? And did you try to, to kind of surround your business plan to have a greater impact on, on more people?
1: Well, uh, yes. I mean, I I would say we, we enhanced the business plan. I, you know, part of opening up retail stores was the thought that, you know, taking uh, this to retail stores uh, would enhance the product offering. Uh, You know, retail is a very, very tough business. And, uh, you know, I I certainly would would say one of the learning experiences is that is not a business you want to just get in uh, without having deep experience. But I mean, the stores were really, you know, people would come to the stores. We had events, we had signings. I mean, we had, uh, uh, you know, the wedding of uh, Cyclops and uh, Jean Grey um, <laughs> at the X-Men uh, at one of our stores that got you know, unbelievable media coverage. I mean, you know, we, we had costume characters. I mean, anything you could think of, we had because, you know, it was well-respected in the industry, and uh, these celebrities would, would fly in and, and do these signings and i mean we would have you know lines out the door and it it was tremendous so you know that was uh something that was great it's just that retail stores were not the most profitable business to be in um and you know that's one of the lessons i I certainly learned the hard way is not every business is the right business even if you're passionate about things you've got to really take a look at you know the cost structure and, and your ability to actually make a profit, which is what you have to do if you're going to succeed long term.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. If, if you don't have a way to monetize it, then it's really a hobby. It's not a business. So that's yeah. right. Great. Um, and also going from direct mailing into retail and then the e-commerce, obviously you have different expenses and, and e-commerce opened up an entirely new world for you. And you've, thrived in the changing environment of e-commerce so let's let's start to dive a little bit deeper into the e-commerce side you said you you went online what 1996 is that what you said yes okay great and when you made that decision and you started going online um i guess take us uh, into what that looks like at the first uh really beginning stages of the e-commerce world
1: Okay, well, I actually started in 1994 when we had a, uh, a a website, but it was just really more or less a a page with some pictures and, right. and uh, directing everybody to the, the phone number. But somewhere in '95, we discovered uh, what became ultimately the Yahoo store, and uh, it was a it was a uh, mechanism to do an e-commerce store, and I had uh, you know some decent uh technology people in my company and and we built uh an e-commerce store so by 1996 we had the ability to have people actually book online and you know early on it was maybe one percent of our business but it was growing every month and the other thing we did um is we started to build content uh and i started to hire um writers and you know the writers were available because they were passionate about the content as well. And you know, we were paying like one cents a word or two cents a word. But people just love to build content. So we were building uh content about um, you know, the comic book world, you know, reviews on uh comic books, reviews on movies, reviews on um characters, uh and it wasn't just comic books, it was also science fiction and it was also fantasy. So, you know, we had, we were starting to to uh, all of a sudden, we started to have visitors, unique visitors, coming from you know all over the globe to our site because we had such rich content, and then that was driving uh, the commerce portion. So it was really, really a fascinating time. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, that was the '90s, and things have become supercharged uh, in the last right.
0: decade uh, with, with the superhero franchises. Yep. My follow-up was going to be, how did you attract people to your website? But you already nailed it. The uh, creating valuable content is going to organically bring people there because they're interested in what you're talking about. Did you do, uh, in those kind of mid to late 90s, did you do paid advertising uh, for this business? Online, I mean. You know, this was way before Google. Uh, right. Um,
1: came in and, and, and completely turned around the industry because uh there was no way really to I mean, unfortunately we we had very limited ways of monetizing the content. we had all this traffic but we had no way to monetize and there was really no way even to target so this was way way early i i think google adwords was
0: was four or five years later yeah. uh when they that basically formed that okay yeah so so when when that came around uh And and you're right, I think it was late 90s, early 2000s. Um, Did you jump on on that bandwagon right away? Or did you keep trying to just bring people in organically? Well, we're bringing people in organically. And,
1: you know, what happened is, um, you know, part of it was where I was located. And part of it was we mixed, um, you know, bricks and mortar with with online and at that stage there was really this whole concept of pure play but uh unsolicited a company came to us called uh fandom, and uh they were based out of San francisco they were uh, a totally venture based company pure play, as they say with uh you know harvard m b a and the whole bit and uh they offered to buy us and uh and also convert um, a lot of my stock into um shares of fandom and uh, i had some some investors in the company at that point and uh you know they really really urged me to do that because they thought it would be very difficult for us to get funding because we weren't in silicon valley which at that point was almost uh, a requirement in the um uh, in the 90s to be out in, in silicon valley and they also thought that uh, at this point uh you know the pure play was the way to go and, and that you know, later it's turned out to be irrational if we look at how e-commerce has evolved. I mean, Amazon looks like they're going to start to open physical stores now. So, but this is, you know, 20 years ago. And, uh, and so the, the attraction of, of getting money and, and getting uh, shares in a pure play uh, was something we ended up doing. And we sold the Fandom in 1998. Uh, Fandom took over, they had raised $50, 60000000 million, I mean, just on a pitch book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I came out and, um, and spent some time in Los Angeles with them, and it became very, very clear to me uh, as uh, I was involved in, with some of the discussions with venture capitalists that, uh, that you, if you're going to take money from venture capitalists, you have to stick to your guns about your concept. Because the venture capitalists kept pushing them from the original concept fandom being, you know, content, great content, different sites, kind of like another universe, but, you know, more supercharged with, with a lot more money. What they did was they essentially bought up a bunch of fan sites, which was a brilliant play, right? So they bought the top Star Wars site and the top Star Trek site and the top... Um, uh, uh, her, uh, token site, um, you know, for Lord of the Rings, et cetera, et cetera. So they they bought these top sites and they pulled them in together into a network, similar to what's going on with sports networks. And they created a network, and that was brilliant. Where they ran into trouble was um, the <laughs> venture capitalists said, "Well, you know, this is only a couple billion dollar idea. You want to get it to multiple billions, 10, 20 twenty billion? You're going to have to create a network." And they literally started pushing them to do. Uh, real-time video content back in 98, 99, at a time when the bandwidth, the technology just wasn't there. Right. And I mean, they blew, blew through $50 million uh, very quickly. They had a burn rate about $2 million a, a month. And then, uh, as we know, in late 99, uh, the window shut. And, uh, you know, um, uh, you know it, was, it was the technology bubble burst. Uh, the companies that had these burn rates without having a lot of cash, they they went out of business, and Fandom went out of business and shuttered uh, somewhere in 2000. So it was kind of a it was almost a surreal experience, kind of watching what was going on um, with Fandom and the venture capitalists. Um, you know, in terms of lessons, there's a
0: lot of lessons to be learned uh, yeah. on, on yeah. that front. And when they when they had that struggle and eventually went out of business, did you still have shares in, in Fandom at that time?
1: Yeah, my 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 shares
0: became worthless.
1: Right. Uh, so uh, I was one of many, many people in uh, Silicon Valley that had nothing to show for their, their work. I mean, I had some, some cash that I took up front, but all the shares were gone. I mean, you know, the companies that were able to uh, go public uh, through the window or just amass a huge amount of capital. Uh, you know they were the ones who ultimately survived, but the ones uh, who didn't—it was—it was pretty much carnage. Uh, you know, for for many many years uh, during that technology bubble, because you just couldn't get funding at that point because uh, there there had been so many losses. Um, so it was it was it was an amazing experience. Now you know I ended up uh, because I had skills. Uh, I worked for uh, Marvel Comics for a little while. Uh, helped. Uh, their online business and then ultimately um, ended up uh, at the Bradford Exchange running their uh, e-commerce division. Bradford Exchange was a, a collectible company uh, privately held out of Chicago and they were best known probably people remember them for plates. The uh, Bradford Exchange were these collectible plates that you could buy uh, on Parade or USA uh, Today weekend and uh, you know you would buy these plates and they would send them every, every uh, month. And then they evolved into villages and train sets and all kinds of you know, dolls and music boxes. I mean, it was a massive, massive uh, company. And, and today they're, they're doing charm bracelets and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, so I, I went over and, and started working for them, uh, running their, uh, their entire e-commerce division. Um, so, you know, at least the skills I learned, uh, you know, enabled me to continue to uh, be gainfully employed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't all become worthless when, when that happened. So, so you were able to apply that to the future. Um, what were some of those, the just top one or two that come to mind lessons that you were able to take away from, from that experience, the the tech bubble experience that you were then able to apply uh, later on in your life?
1: Well, I mean, the first lesson is really, uh, you know, the lesson of venture capital, which is, you know, you need to be very careful of when you take it and who you partner up with. And, you know, with, uh, V trips, we have not taken in any venture capital. And, um, and there may be a point where we do that, but it'll be very, we'll be very careful to, to vet our partners very carefully to make sure we have common interest. Um, you know, there are, you know, some really excellent venture firms, and then there's some really uh, terrible firms. And then also really understanding what is the time, you know, what's the timeline of of when a venture firm expects a return, and uh, are they gonna push you into, you know, essentially doing things that are reckless to try to get there. Um, You know, it it really is a double-edged sword, and and, you know, in our business of uh, vacation rentals, there's a ton of people that are taking money from ventures, um, but it's uh, it can be a bit like uh, taking the poison apple. Uh, you know, It may look good, uh, but you may bite into it and, and it ends up killing you. So you've got to be very prudent. And I think there's also the discipline, which I think anyone I would talk to is this, build a profitable business. If you build a profitable business, you don't have to take venture funds. I mean, if you're truly profitable, uh, you can pick and choose your spot. So, you know, that's really kind of in a, in a nutshell. I, I mean, I know I, I've talked to venture people and I and I think, you know, they drink a lot of their own Kool-Aid. Uh, you know, they believe in this kind of model. Uh, and, you know, that's great for them. It's kind of self-serving, but it's not really great for the entrepreneur to buy into, you know, this is the way things are done. It's, you know, building a profitable business. There is nothing wrong with building a profitable business. And guess what? If you build a profitable business and you decide at some point, based on the terms and conditions to take money and drive revenue short term at the expense of profit, at least you have the underpinnings of, of understanding how to create profitability if you ever need to turn it back. So, you know, our company, yeah, you know, we have substantial revenue and we have substantial profit. Um, you know, we certainly could drive more revenue uh, at a greater pace uh, and take less profit. Um, and and I know how to do that. Uh, and, but understanding that discipline is critical. And too many companies have made the mistake of thinking it's all about revenue and they don't manage their costs. And in many cases, some of these people lose control of their company because the venture capital uh, kick them out. They have shares of stock that uh, basically are the lowest of priority. And if there's a sale, uh, you know, they're last in line. So it's it's kind of a sad situation. I've seen a number of companies in uh, the travel space who have dissolved. And, you know, the founders who just basically worked, um, you know, 80 hours a week have nothing to show for it. So, um, you know, it, it can be a terrible situation to get into venture a uh, venture funding unless you really, really understand what you're doing and you really, uh, you know, pick the right partner and you really have, you both are aligned with what is the path um, ultimately for liquidation of the partner. So how long do they want to stay in? What are the terms of them getting out? And you're all on the same page.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And you had mentioned earlier in the conversation uh, that you had investors in another universe. Um, how did you go about the process of, of picking those investors and, and did they line up with your vision and things like that? Right. So exactly.
1: Uh, I, I deferred to my chief financial officer at the time. He brought in these people from uh, New York and, uh, they really didn't understand technology and they certainly didn't understand um uh kind of the vision and so we were misaligned almost from the beginning um so you know i i would say and, and you know any entrepreneur you've got to take ownership of the capital raise i mean it's great to have a strong person on the financial side but you can't defer um the relationships or um, the choices to someone else. It's too critical. I mean, it's, it's basically the future of your business. So, you know, when I've done capital raises and I've dealt, dealt with banks, um, you know, I'm in the meetings. Um, and I'm looking at the term sheets and I'm studying, um, you know, the various term sheets side by side. And I certainly take advice from a number of people, but ultimately at the end of the day, um, you know, I make a decision. I mean, the last time we raised capital, we had a number of term sheets, right? So, you know, in, and one term sheet in particular was very aggressive with, with capital, but they wanted warrants. And, you know, warrants aren't directly equity, but they can turn into essentially conversion of equity. And, you know, it, the investment banking firm was pushing me towards this, but it's because they made fees based on the transaction size. And, you know, I looked at this and said, you know, why would I take this level of risk? Um, and instead, I went with actually the most conservative deal, which was a commercial bank in our region uh, who had uh, essentially the um, most conservative terms, which would be the, uh, you know, the lowest debt uh, service cost. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be a great decision because, you know, we had some natural disasters um, in 2017 uh, uh, and 2018. And, uh, you know, as much as we would like to have hit every number on our forecast, we did it. But not having taken the most aggressive capital raise turned out to be the right decision. And, you know, we're still in strong position now, actually much stronger, to go out and and recap that, that debt. So, you know, my lesson from another universe was I was very hands-off. I deferred to other people on the capital raise. And that was a mistake, right? So I was too busy. I said, you know, I've got to run the business, I've got to run the operations, I've got to run the marketing. Today, um, I find other people to do those core issues, I overview it, uh, and I have a lot of knowledge. But I'm um, forward facing with um, meetings, with capital providers, meeting with um, strategic partners. You know, I'm, I'm, I go out on the um, circuit and I, and I network tremendously. And, you know, that network turns into a number of really strong business relations. And and those are things that it's very, very hard to do um, if you're getting it kind of diluted through someone else. So I would urge anyone who's ever looking at raising capital to to not defer it to someone else, but to be very involved um, in those conversations and make sure you know exactly what you're doing, who you're getting involved with. because. Uh, it's going to be very, very hard to get uninvolved with people, uh, particularly if they're uh, a venture uh, group.
0: Right. Well, because it, it appears that it's a financial decision, but it's not. It's a relationship decision, right? Because you're you're getting into business with these people, and if you're misaligned, then it's it's doomed to steer in the wrong direction for one of you, right? So that, that's right. It's a lot easier to get rid of a bank <laughs> uh, if.
1: You don't have the right relation with the bank than a venture firm, right? So, um, you know, we've had a couple different commercial banks. Uh, we'd like to stick with one. Hopefully, we'll find one that will be with us long term. But, um, and you know, there's obviously, um, you know, uh, integration issues anytime you switch banks. But, um, you know, you can do it. Uh, a venture firm that's tied in, uh, you know, to your uh, into your shares and. and you just can't uh, exit them and, and so you're stuck and so you know right now we don't have any of that so i don't have any of that drama i don't have any of that nonsense uh of of, of equity partners and I'll, and I'll tell you i mean there's firms uh there's companies in this industry the vacation rental industry who have raised uh you know one firm's almost 200 million dollars of, of capital and uh you know those those venture capitalists are right in bed with them and um you know who knows maybe they're the ones that win the race but you know i would like to believe that at the end of the day uh you you basically take your chance and you select your partners when you're absolutely certain that you've got the right business model that is sustainable and scalable and that might be somewhat hard if you're young and you don't really know the difference, but when you get to a little bit of, uh, of, of an older age and you've kind of seen different business models, um, you know it when you see it and what truly is scalable and what's truly sustainable, um, uh, is something that when you see it, when you see the numbers, when you see the ability to scale and the ability to, you know, really scale most uh, exponentially, that's when you want to, you want to strike. Um, and that's a lot different than linear.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great lesson for for everybody listening and watching. It's great. So we've kind of been steering towards where you are today. So let's jump in there, um, and we've hit on V trips a little bit, both in the intro and then a couple of things that you've said. So uh, give us a deeper dive into what V trips really is, and then we'll then we'll go further.
1: Well, at the core, uh, we say we're a technology-enabled property management company. So you know what that means is uh, we've leveraged technology to um, to apply to the property manager se- property management segment, and we've done this through a centralized hub and spoke model. And we've moved into 18 markets throughout the United States. So we started as clearly just a one-office property management shop in Florida. And uh, over time, using m and A, I uh, I grew the business uh, throughout the state of Florida. But as technology came into the vacation rental sector, which was one of the sectors that kind of lagged a lot of other travel, um, I started to see the advantage of leveraging hosted systems to build a truly technology-enabled hub-and-spoke model where we could go outside of market. So we're in markets as far as Hawaii, New Mexico, Tennessee, South Carolina. Um, And we use technology to, you know, essentially create, obviously, centralization of websites, centralization of database. Um, We leverage um, centralized marketing, centralized accounting, centralized IT, uh, centralized call center. And we have done that in a way where where we become a bit of a master at doing it and and a bit of a Master at, at, at being able to integrate businesses very quickly into us because we've primarily done M and A uh, to expand, um, and so we gain tremendous GA efficiencies. But the other thing that we've done, uh, and it is harder than it sounds, although the companies that you know kind of have the next level of kind of thought are able to do it, is we take a look at the revenue how the revenue is coming in and, and where we can potentially enhance uh, fees to the company. So things like, you know, we charge a cancellation fees. Some of the companies we may acquire had never charged a cancellation fee. Well, cancellations happen in travel and, you know, consumers understand that there's going to be a cancellation fee, you know, particularly if you have an airline or a hotel in some cases, um, we have added travel insurance. Well, travel insurance is just uh an extra additional income uh, stream and look, it helps because if the guest has a problem where they can't come um, on vacation or they have a medical emergency, the travel insurance comes in and steps in. And it's, you know, it's extra revenue stream. Uh, We charge instead of a a refundable deposit, security deposit, which was, you know, really the norm 10 years ago in the vacation rental industry. We charge a non-refundable damage waiver fee. Well, that's great because the consumer loves it because their money's not tied up in a security deposit where they may or may not understand or trust uh, what the rules are. And now it's just a non-refundable fee which covers them uh, for any incidental damage. Um, so, you know, these are, these are different things we do. And we're able to build that book of business and really drive more revenue out of it by really understanding them with, you know, the underlying uh, numbers. And, you know, at the end of the day, Vacation, rental, lodging um, is uh, a component of, of hospitality, similar to hotels, but different, certainly more flexible. At the end of the day, you know how you manage your g and and how you manage your revenue is what ultimately is going to decide if you're uh, sustainable and scalable, right? So understanding how to manage these cost components, how to actually drive profitability, um, becomes the key. And, uh, you know, that, that's really where B trips has evolved to. Yep.
0: You had a large history of, um, e-commerce, right? Which directly relates to what you're doing, but also to collectibles. So what attracted you to rental properties, property management, uh, things like that? What attracted you to that in the first place? Well, I'd say it's, uh, like
1: almost, similar to comic book, uh, business, I kind of fell into it. So I've enjoyed vacationing when I was in Chicago working for the Bradford exchange I bought my first vacation rental and I couldn't find a property management company to manage it. Um, this was right after 2001. And so there, there was a recession and people weren't traveling. Uh, and so I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this industry. I'll just, why don't I just build a website? So I, I, um, hired a a company off a site called Rent-A-Coder and we built a website and that became uh, what was Vacation Rental Pros. Vacation Rental Pros was the original name of the company before we evolved the V-Trips. And I started to get, you know, and I just, you know, I was just doing this at night and and weekends, but I started to build, you know, links and um, I started to get all this organic traffic coming uh, to Vacation Rental Pros. I started to have so much more demand than I had. I only had one house so then I bought another house and then I bought another house well after a while I said you know there's only so many houses I want to buy and I had friends who said well can you rent my property and I said well you know not really what I want to do but I'll do it as a favor (laughs) so here I am I've got a full time uh, e-commerce business and I'm moonlighting and I'm managing uh, at the peak it was crazy I was managing like 20 properties and finally it just (laughs) got to a point where I'm like I've got a I've got to even you know, do this full time. Right. So um, that's really uh, what happened. But, you know, with Vacation, rental solo to comic books, I really like them. I mean, you know, it's a great product. You get um, houses, condos, uh, you know, that are decorated, um, that are really a great value for the consumer. Um, you know, you're really enriching people's experience because they're traveling with their family. You know, they have a living room, they have a dining room. Uh, there's outdoor space where they can all get together. So um, it it's really been uh, a great experience uh, for the consumer, and it's a great experience as well because you know um, they pre-book these things uh, way in advance. There's really almost similar uh, to to the Bradford Exchange, almost a, a continuity element to this, where uh, you can pretty much predict over time that um, you know the units will have a certain level of occupancy, and so. You know, where the, uh, where the magic is, is, is how much more yield management you can do with the rates and uh, the shoulder seasons and the off seasons for, for additional occupancy. So it, it's, an, it's an amazing business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, it really just goes back to 11-year-old Steve. You, you had a problem, you were passionate about it, and you use your entrepreneurial mindset to find a solution for it and create it for yourself. Now, the fact that it evolved into a legitimate business is same thing, very similar to what happened a few years later when you were younger, coming into a, a business that related to that original problem that you solved. So that's fantastic. Um, so you had mentioned earlier the, the flow of competitors, right? The, all these different people trying to do um, different versions of what you're solving. Um, what's your differentiator? What's your kind of competitive advantage? So, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the sector is,
1: um, alternative accommodations, 10 years ago, there was about a 10% category awareness. Now it's closer to 40%. And really part of it is, um, you know, Airbnb is, you know, just gained so much capital over time that, um, you know, they they built a tremendous amount of of category awareness. Uh, And then uh, HomeAway went public, and HomeAway ultimately ended up selling to Expedia and now um, Booking.com. So you've had uh, just, and and we really can can, uh, really center on Airbnb. You've had so much capital that has come in um, to what was considered to be, you know, vacation rentals now called alternative accommodations. and um it's it's driven eyeballs, right? So category awareness is really you know increased by four hundred percent. And uh, you know, we're still in the early stages, so all of this capital came in, you know, Airbnb's raised billions and billions, and you know, they're potentially gonna go public this year. And uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they'll they'll have a valuation similar to Uber. Uh, Uber's looking at close to a hundred billion um, valuations. So You've had all this capital come in on the demand side well, now all of a sudden, capital's starting to shift to the the logic side the what I call the supply side, the e-commerce side and so uh, there's been a handful of companies that have gained some pretty significant capital um, raises uh, and it's interesting, right? because everybody's looking for essentially the next Amazon, right? so you know you'd have demand and then you have commerce, and you know it you know it took Amazon a while to become you know where they are market cap but you know they were you know they needed the demand to start well you know investors are smart right so they recognize if there's all this demand there's gonna be uh, a lot of success on the lodging side so there's companies like picasa that are that has raised uh, they're out of portland oregon about 200 million turnkey which has raised about 75 million out of uh, uh, austin texas Evolve, which is based in the denver area has raised about 80 million uh and then you've um um, started to see transactions, right? So M&A, uh, you saw Acor Hotel buy one fine stay for about 190 million. Uh, Airbnb bought luxury retreat for, uh, well, it's hard to tell because it was a private transaction, but we've heard as much as 250 million. And then um, an equity firm bought um, Windham Europe for uh, 1.3 billion uh, just last year. So there's all of this this money that is just flowing into the sector and then it's also flowing into the suppliers you know, software vendors, uh, insurance vendors, all these vendors are getting funded. So, you know, what's happened is um, because of all this money flowing in, in some cases, uh, some companies are running uh, without having to, to run a profit. Right. right. And so yeah. it's, it's interesting because uh, in some cases they're considered to be successful because they've raised all this money, but yet they're not running profitable businesses. Um, other companies that have profitable businesses, not necessarily sending out press releases everywhere, uh, they're just kind of um, working through their processes. But what separated us um, from these companies, I think, is first and foremost, we know how to manage our GNA, which means we know how to manage our payrolls. So we're not just throwing bodies at problems, right? So I've spent a lot of time on the technology. And the platform, and it's truly a technology enabled platform, right? So, as we grow, we're not just piling more bodies on top of bodies. You know, Picasa has close to 2,000 employees, we have 150 employees. And um, we don't have um, a technology department. We use hosted systems, and I've leveraged hosted systems with um, a number of APIs that are tied together, right? So, we've, we've done a tremendous amount to create a very, very efficient business. Uh, That's profitable and the other thing is we've been really really smart about how we expand, right? So we're not reckless we're not just Expanding for the sake of expanding. We're very very smart with where we expand and how we expand and are doing things uh, Like in market roll-ups where we're in a market and we just continue to roll up more and more um, business Um, You know to me going out and doing a shotgun strategy maybe that makes sense and maybe the vcs it excites them um that's not our strategy our strategy is to be in maybe the top 30 40 markets in north america and be the best and be the most dominant player in those top 40 uh markets and that's not any different than how the hotels operate right so the hotel chains are not in every market they're not in the small markets um, they're in the large markets, and when they get into a large market, they concentrate because they gain efficiencies in marketing, they gain efficiencies in g and and so that's what we're doing, and the fundamental difference to us is, um, you know, really the devil's in the detail, right? So uh, on, on the surface, it looks like everybody has the same business model because, you know, we're multiple destinations, but there's a real difference of how we're managing those multiple destinations and how we will continue to expand into those multiple destinations. And um, I think it's really gonna be interesting five years from now what people write about this subject because um, I think uh, clearly we are going to see uh, a lot of people take a look at what was funded and really scratch their head as to what people that were funding were, were really seeing or thinking. Yeah. You know, and,
0: and the the difference in how people view success in, in what you're talking about, right? People can raise a lot of capital and not be profitable and deem themselves as success, but sticking to the strategy of running a, a high quality profitable business with a clear vision, like what you just laid out is, is how you view success with your business, which is fantastic. So what's one of one or two, uh, of the favorite aspects of what you're doing right now, from a personal standpoint.
1: Well, the thing that I'm most interested in is um, the development of the new product. So I've aligned myself um, with some developers, and we're building brand new uh, vacation rental product. And I'm most passionate about product because I think it all starts with product. Um, and if you have retrofitted vacation rentals, you know, in other words. Um, maybe condos or homes that were never meant to be a vacation rental, but uh, they ultimately became a rental, or they're just really outdated, old. Um, you know, that's part of the problem, right? Consumers want things that are new, or certainly a segment of consumers want things that are new. And if you purpose build from the beginning a product and it has the features that consumers want, you know, which it's, you know, uh, private bathrooms, bigger living rooms, um, bigger kitchens, um, you know, a game room, family room, circling heated uh, pool that's private, uh, you know, maybe an elevator. These are all things that consumers want, but there's not enough supply, right? So aligning ourselves with developers to build this inventory really has been a passion of mine. So it's a strategic initiative of mine, and uh, we're doing it in, in, in uh, one major market. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be very, very scalable.
0: Nice. That's great. I love it. Um, now I want to flip on the other side. That's, that's some of the favorite things you're pursuing, but business owners, uh, you go through struggles every single day, right? There are different hurdles that we all have to face as business owners. What are one or two of your pain points right now that you're dealing with?
1: Well, you know, the pain points right now are, um, finding good people, and I know that sounds like a cliche, uh, but if you're gonna grow and you're gonna expand, you're gonna need good people. And We've kind of really looked inside at kind of our hiring process, and we determined that trying to find people who are unemployed may not be the best route for our <laughs> success. Uh, so uh, we've put an emphasis on bringing in recruiters, and um, the emphasis is going to be to uh, attempt to find people that have jobs, uh, have skills, and we're going to pay them a little bit more. And uh, we've been doing that uh, and we can do that. We have uh, really good benefits and um, we're able to, to pay a little bit more in markets because we're more profitable. And, um, you know, I think it's going to long run really enable us uh, to move forward and get out of this uh, kind of cycle of, um, you know, churn, where which is really very costly to have people that are. is kind of like a revolving door where they come in, they don't work out, they leave, bring someone else in. So we're trying to really uh, focus in on, on churn. The other thing is really uh, that we're focused in on, on um, cleaning. Uh, cleaning is a big thing with vacation rentals, and so you know, part of changing cleaning is is building process, and. Um, You know, so we've aligned ourselves with building laundry facilities in some of our major um, areas, and those laundry facilities are more than just places where you, you know, clean the the sheets and clean the towels and fold and and do that, but we also put the supplies in. But what it does is it creates consistency, and it also creates a a process for the cleaners where every every cleaner has the same supplies, the same sheets, the same towels, and you create consistency. it's one thing to talk about improving cleaning, and it's another thing to actually do it. And, you know, in, in some of these resort markets we're in, you know, labor is very, very scarce, including independent contract labor. So if you can make the cleaner's job easier by having sheets and towels and supplies all packed and ready for them, and all they have to do is come by and pick it up, that really makes it possible to, you know, win those independent contractors to your side. Um, you know, so, so those are some of the pain points we talked about internally that we're, we're executing on. I mean, we are executing on these things and, and that's partly why we think we can scale the business because, you know, scaling the business is not just about growing the revenue. It's not just about um, going out and acquiring. It's also about being able to sustain the operational elements of the business, right? So what you don't want to do is go run out and buy a bunch of businesses or expand but not be able to support the, um, the expansion. Then essentially you you're, you're going to have potential chaos and um, you're, gonna, you're gonna start to, to, to lose revenue. So some of our competitors are finding that out the hard way where their foundations they have in place are not strong enough to sustain um, the volume that, they've, um, that they want to attain. You know, from my standpoint, uh, a scalable, sustainable model is one where revenue and operations can scale together And uh, that's the only way you are going to hit those high-end numbers.
0: Yeah. Well, and you've put yourself in that position, too, because you referenced a company earlier that have 2,000 employees and just throw bodies at problems. You've been able to maintain the efficiency of having 150 people there, getting the right people on board, making your systems and processes efficient. So then as you grow and you're increasing, it's not just – Um, increasing business like you said it's also increasing uh, the revenue as well as the profits all at the same time so okay so I want to pivot into kind of more broad type questions Uh, we've been extremely tactical and I love it I think it's really valuable for what we've talked about so far so let's go into kind of the more broad questions the first one if you were mentoring a business leader or somebody trying to start a business today, what are, what are a couple pieces of advice or guidance that uh, you've learned throughout your life that you think would be the most valuable to give to, to somebody in that position?
1: Well, I've talked to people a number of times about this yep. and sometimes it's not well received, but I mean, I'm a big believer in starting a business as a hobby or moonlighting uh, and kind of taking your passion and doing it at night and weekends and building the business that way. I I get that there's certain people who said, well, I want to jump in with both feet. Well, you know, the problem is, you know, there's a lot of learning curve, right? And you can kind of overcome some of that learning curve by doing this, you know, nights, weekends, et cetera. And, um, and actually, you know, also build a book of business before you decide that it's now time to go from your full-time job into this. Um, you know, and just from a, a path to profitability, that that is also, I, I think, a, a, a very important aspect as well, because, you know, you, here you are, you're spending time, you have the ability to kind of tweak your business model, particularly if you have a full-time job and you're doing it at night or weekends. So, you know, that's really one of the things I've talked to, uh, you know, younger people about. Uh, the other thing is that, it's not always about being big, right? So I have so many people that come to me and say, you know, I want to grow, I want to grow. And I said, why? Well, you know, normally they don't necessarily have an answer. And if the answer isn't, uh, well, I want to generate more profit, then I really wonder why they're growing. And if the answer is they want to grow more profit, one of my questions to them is, well, can you grow in the market? Can you change your inventory? Are there fundamental ways that you can manage or maneuver? And one of the reasons why, you know, why we grew as well, is uh, we wanted to diversify some of our risk. Um, and it's proven out to be very, very prudent. Um, you know, we're in the vacation rental industry, we were in the state of Florida, and Florida's prone to hurricanes. When I started to diversify before we got hit by three hurricanes in a row, that was very, very smart because um, you know our Florida business has uh, uh, clearly been impacted by three hurricane strikes. So going into um, areas that are diversified um, has really helped us. It's also helped us with our staffing because um, different uh, places and locations we're in have different cycles for sales and and, and service. So we're able to economize, um, you know, um, our um, our staff. So You know, I ask people, you know, questions of why, and and unless it's thought out, I really kind of tell people, look, why don't you really think about this before you take out that line of credit or uh, take all your credit cards and, you know, max them out or, um, you know, take venture funding money, which, you know, that's kind of crazy. You know, I talked to some, some guy in Atlanta, and he's been offered multiple venture funds over and over and keeps turning it down. And I... You know we, we had a really good conversation he said look you know i i will probably take venture funding at some time he said but first and foremost i know i can get this business to profitability and when i get it to profitability i will have better terms and better control over the business and i mean he has a plan right he doesn't want to lose this business to a bunch of venture uh, uh, people and i really respect that i mean he's willing to put the time in he has a path um, to profitability, he kind of went over um, how many more clients he needs to really truly get to a sustainable profitable business, and then at that point, then he may take a look at bringing in an equity partner, but it'll be with uh, you know different valuation and different term sheets. I really respect that.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, okay. The next is we've talked a lot about the kind of your definition of success when it comes to a business standpoint. So let's flip it to the personal side. What, how do you define success in your life? Well, I mean, obviously I think, um, success starts
1: with your internal happiness. You know, how do you feel getting out of bed? You have a passion to get up early. Um, you have a passion to start working, you know, And work is a big component of your personal life, right? Because you're spending so many hours of your day at work. So I think having passion, feeling uh, happy and fulfilled is is critically important. You know, the other aspect I think is clearly, are you at a point where you have to worry about money? Uh, If you can get to a point where you don't have to worry about money or have to worry a lot less about money, uh, you know, that's gonna put you in a good place. Um, so, you know, part of this is, and again, if you have a profitable business and you don't, and and you're prudent about things, I mean, you know, you can get a nice house and get, send your kids to the right schools and right universities. Um, you can start to stock away retirement funds. Uh, you can do a lot of things, uh, you know, support your parents as they get into, uh, older age. Uh, you can do a lot of things if you have, uh, money. And I think some people at this point tend to look at money as something that isn't necessarily the the right thing to talk about. And I don't understand why. I guess maybe it's not politically correct, but it should be politically correct to talk about money. It should be politically correct to talk about having enough money to provide for yourself, your family. Uh, And, um, you know, there is no reason not to talk about it. And, you know, that's why... I'm so upfront about profitability because it allows you to put yourself in a position where you you've been able to provide for your family and yourself, and, and in a way where uh, uh, you're not having to to worry um, uh, about you know meeting uh, meeting your next mortgage payment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you, uh, you don't have that weighing on your mind, you can, you can focus a little bit more on, on what you, you want to be doing not what you're forced to be doing. So it's great. Um, what's one thing in this world that you would want to change and why? (laughs) Boy. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that we've kind of gotten to a point in society where in some cases, people are afraid to to talk candidly about things that they're concerned about, um, even in business. And I think that's really to the detriment. I mean, when I first started out, we used to have round tables and peer groups and we would talk very candidly. And now because of political correctness, it's very tough for people to really feel like they can talk about employment issues or HR issues or um, you know, fundamentals of of some of the business issues. And I think that's, that's unfortunate. And, you know, I have people who I talk to privately and, and, and that's good. Um, And I mentor some people as well, but I think it's, you know, I think we've lost because of some of the political correctness, the ability to really help Steer our business because people are such an important part of your business, right? I mean, you need people and you need to be able to talk about people. And because of all this political correctness, it's it's so hard to really talk. Um, people are scared, really, to, to talk about personnel and, and HR and, and things like that. But people are a component of your business, and having the right people can be the difference between making your, your company a success or not a success. Yeah.
0: I, I think you hit on a really good topic. Um, all right, let's finish up with this last one. Uh, you and I are having a conversation three years from now. What's happened in that time to where you can look back and say that was a successful period in your life?
1: <laughs> well, we're working on a budget. We're working on on a plan to recapitalize um, our capital right now. And hopefully we have executed that and we've been able to substantially um, the footprint of our business and really I'm looking at two ways one um, we're looking to move into some additional markets and two I'm looking to to move forward with a a lot of our new development and um, business development opportunities and so if I pull it off right if I'm able to start to align myself with developers and we're actually able to start to build purpose-built inventory um, I think We become, we evolve into a company uh, that is really kind of changing what I would consider to be the paradigm of that there's not enough supply for vacation rentals, right? So if we can build supply, we have exclusivity, um, we're able to go into new markets and and align ourselves with developers. Um, I think that's where um, we really change and shift um, our fortunes. So hopefully three years from now, I can, you know, maybe we'll spend that uh, interview in, in one of our purpose-built communities. And we can see firsthand what we've done, right? You know, because I'm I'm really passionate about product and uh, I want to build new inventory and I want to build the right thing. Great.
0: That's, uh, well, I'm looking forward to being able to do that with you a few years from now. So... You have done an amazing job of of building up a library of content on your LinkedIn, uh, both articles, videos, a lot of different podcasts, things like that. So, anybody watching or listening that wants to to soak up more content uh, with Steve, go to his his LinkedIn page. We'll we'll put a link for that. Um, anywhere else that you want people to be able to go if they want to uh, to learn about you or learn more about B trips.
1: Well, you can go to vtrips.com, but other than that, uh, LinkedIn, Steve Milo uh, will get you a lot of content um, that you'll find interesting and hopefully useful.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you, Ben.